And good morning, church family. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, looking at verses 12 through 17 this morning. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 984. And I've entitled today's message, Resolved to Put on the Virtues of Christ. Let's begin in a word of prayer. Lord, we do thank you so much for giving us a a morning to gather together. We thank you, Lord, for each one who's been able to come. Lord, would you bless our time together? Help us as we seek to understand this portion of your word. We want to become virtuous people, Lord. We want to become like your son. And we know that through your spirit and through the study of your word, that can happen. And so be with us, Lord, and we pray these things in your Son's name. Amen. So from a Christian perspective, spiritual growth involves two steps. The first step is putting off the vices of our pre-Christian lives. And that's what we talked about last week. In fact, in verse 8 of last week's text, Paul described the vices of our old lives as filthy garments that we've got to rid ourselves of. Now, I've got a couple of small children, you know that, and after a good rain, my kids love nothing more than to get outside and find the biggest mud puddle they can, okay? In fact, we've got this low spot on our property that tends to to collect the rainwater, and my kids head right for that spot, jump in and splash and have a good time. Well, once they're done, they want to come back in the house, and before they can enter the, the, the back door, we say to them, stop, you ain't coming into the house looking like this, right? You've got to strip off those clothes, then you can come in. Well, in the same way, the Apostle Paul said that our vices are like filthy garments, We wore these garments when we were outside of the church, outside of God's grace. But now that we have come in, we must shed these filthy garments. Well, today we're in verses 12 to 17, and we're looking at the second part of the spiritual growth process, the putting on of the virtues of Christ. And I'm so glad that the Apostle Paul has put these these two steps back to back. Because I think Paul here clears up a common misconception about the Christian life. If you ask the average non-Christian out there what it means to live the Christian life, they're probably going to give you an answer like this. Oh, being a Christian involves giving up all the fun stuff, right? You got to give this up and that up and that up, and that's what being a Christian is all about. Well, here the Apostle Paul explains to us that the Christian life is not so much about just giving stuff up, but rather it's about replacing worthless things with virtuous things, to get rid of vice, but then to replace it with virtue. And in today's text, the Apostle Paul will walk us through the kinds of virtues that we are called to put on. Let's begin with a very simple question. What is virtue? What is this thing we're called to put on? Well, virtue is, very simply, moral excellence. That's what we Christians are called to put on, moral excellence. We are called to reflect in our lives the moral beauty of God in Christ. 
And here at the start of verse 12, the Apostle Paul compares the virtues to clean garments that we put on. You see that uh, in the verse, put on then, these virtues. So, vice is like a filthy garment that we've got to shed, and the virtue is like the bright, clean linen that we should put on in its place. Now, in the second part of verse 12, the apostle answers the question of why we should make the effort to do this. Why should we strive to become morally excellent people? Look what Paul says here in verse 12. He says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, these virtues. So he gives us a series of reasons why we should desire to put on virtue. He says we should put on virtue because we are God's chosen ones. This is really remarkable. My Christian friends, do you understand that before this world existed, I mean, before God had created time or space or matter or energy or any of it, back in eternity past when it was just God, you were already on his mind. You were already there in the, in the divine mind. And God had already back then chosen you to become a part of his church, which is the bride of his son. That's what it means when it says, we are God's chosen ones. And then he says, we are holy That's the result of our election. To be holy is to be set aside from common things for a new special use. We are are God's chosen ones. And because of that, we are now separated from the world. We are his special people. And then it says we are also beloved. This speaks of the basis of our election. In eternity past, God put us in his mind, and then he set his affection on us. And then in the course of time, he acted on that that, um, decision and on that love, and he called us to himself, made us a part of his son's bride. Now, Ephesians chapter 1 speaks of these truths very clearly as well. Ephesians 1 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, For he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. For he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Now, are these not remarkable truths to think that you have been on the mind and in the heart of God since before the world began and that you were called to be a part of his son's bride in time because of that work of God in eternity past? It's incredible. He's called us to this great high position. And friends, what greater motivation could there be than this? for us to work on the virtues of Christ in our Christian life, 
to know that, that God is, has chosen me, that God has set me aside to be holy, to know that I am beloved of God. Should I not desire now to be like the God who has done these great things for me? Should I not desire to be a, a virtuous bride for his son, the Lord Jesus Christ? See, this is what putting on virtue is all about. It's about becoming in our practice what God has already made us positionally. It's about being worthy of the high calling that we have received and of being pure brides for his son. And what kinds of virtues should we be putting on? Well, in verses 12 through 7, the apostle gives us 10 virtues to put on. Before we look at these 10 virtues, though, allow me to make just a few general observations about the list as a whole. First of all, just like the vice list in verses 5 through 9, okay, this virtue list is representative, not exhaustive in nature. Okay? In other words, Paul is not saying, here's your list of 10, do these and you'll be perfect. No, Paul's saying, these are 10 of the kinds of things that you should be working on in your Christian life. There are more that could have been added to the list. In fact, if you go down to verse 17, Paul kind of concludes with this great summary. And whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. So Paul gives us all of these virtues. And then he says, you know what? There's a whole bunch more. So let me just end this way. In everything you do and everything you say, just represent Jesus well. See, it's a representative list. Also, as we go through this list together, you're going to notice that none of these virtues can be developed in seclusion. In order to, to cultivate these virtues in your life, in other words, you're going to have to be among people. This should not be surprising to us since we know that Christianity is not a private religion. It's a religion meant to be lived out in the public. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, we are the, the salt of the earth and the light of the world. That means we are out there. We're in the world. We're not to be of the world, but we are to be in the world. We're to have a distinctive and visible presence in the world. In fact, the very act of becoming a Christian is a public act. You're not baptized in your bathtub at home by yourself. No, you're baptized before a congregation of people. Becoming a Christian is a public act. And every day of the Christian life is lived before the eyes of the public. Another observation about the list. None of the virtues contained here can be developed apart from a vital connection to a local church. So we've, we're called to live our lives in public. We're also called to live our lives as members of a church. We're going to go through this list and you're going to find it is impossible, impossible to keep any of these virtues if we're not vitally tied to other believers in Christ in a local context. It uh, grieves me to encounter so many Christians that honestly think they can like plop down on a couch on a Sunday morning turn on the television, watch the televangelist for an hour, and that that is the extent of the, the Christian life, or that any Christian virtue can truly be cultivated that way. No, Christianity isn't just about the impartation of information. It's also a lived experience, and it's as we interact with and are challenged by our fellow church members that these virtues begin to grow 
in our lives. And then a final observation about the, the list as a whole. You're going to notice that they all focus on the heart. Paul doesn't say, okay, here are the, the virtues of being a Christian. It's do this, do this, do this, do this, all, all kinds of outward actions. Those are important, but they flow from a transformed heart. So every one of these virtues, it's not going to be do this and this and this. It's going to be rather be this kind of a person and be that kind of a person and be that kind of a person. Work on the heart, its attitudes, its desires, and out of that will flow the right behavior. Okay, so these are my general observations about the list. Let's look through the virtues together now, one at a time, very briefly, and we'll begin with a category that I am calling the selfless virtues. The selfless virtues, verses 12 and 13. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, there's number one, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. There they are, the selfless virtues. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Let's start with kindness. Now, literally, our Greek texts say, bowels of mercy. Well, where, where does that phrase come from? Well, have you ever noticed how when, when you encounter a person in distress and you are really, really moved with sympathy for that person. I mean, you really want to do some good for that person. You, you actually feel it physically inside of you. I mean, have you ever noticed that? Maybe with, with your children or a sibling or any, anyone that you care about, you, you feel on the inside of you when the, the sympathy for that person. Well, that's where the bowels of mercy language comes from. Compassion is all about having sympathy for those in distress. Whether the problems in their life were self-caused or whether it was caused by problems outside of their control, you, you see them in their pitiable state and on the inside, your, your heart and your stomach are just churning for them. You want to do good for them. You don't look down on them. You, you think, how can I be of assistance to this person? Friends, as we look at the life of Christ, was he not a man of compassion? To, to come into the world in the first place, to lay aside his glory, put on flesh, and, and dwell in a sinful and broken world, that was an act of compassion on his part. And throughout his entire ministry, we see him approaching people who are, who are lame or deaf or dumb or, or impoverished or demonized or struggling with sins that they cannot break free of. And he is moving toward them, not away from them. And he is ministering to them physically and then also with the words of the gospel. Christ is our model for compassion. We are to put on the virtue of compassion too. And then the second virtue, kindness. This speaks of being friendly or generous or considerate of others. It's closely related to being compassionate. You don't speak to people harshly, but you speak to them gently. Thirdly, there is humility. Humility is not being preoccupied with yourself and your own importance, but instead you're preoccupied with what you can do to lift others up. And once more, we see these virtues embodied in Christ. Wasn't Christ a kind person? Approached people 
who were, who were in distress, especially people who, who were desperate to learn from him and how he spoke to them so kindly. You know, even those times when Christ would, would talk to the, the scribes and the Pharisees and he would use just the harshest language with them. His intent was kindness. He wasn't speaking to them merely out of, out of anger. He was speaking to them with the desire to confront them with their sins. He's saying, you hypocrites, you brood of vipers. The point was, don't you see what you've become? Repent, come to me and have new life. He spoke and he acted in ways that were both kind and humble. He lived his life for other people, not for himself. He put the needs of others ahead of his own needs. Sometimes he went nights without sleep. Sometimes he was completely exhausted because he spent so many hours ministering to other people. Friends, our Lord was was compassionate. He was kind and humble. And this is what we Christians are called to be as well. And then the fourth word, meek. The word meekness is translated, uh, excuse me, is used in our New Testament scriptures 11 times. And in most contexts, I believe in this context as well, the word means gentle. Meekness is gentleness. It means not being harsh or cruel with others, but approaching them softly as the occasion warrants. And then number five here is patience. We're called to be patient with others. Now, patience means endurance without complaint. And was not Christ the most patient man who ever lived? Sometimes we give that title to Job, but it really belongs to Jesus. Think of the patience that he displayed during his more than 30 years on this earth, the patience that he showed toward his, his unbelieving family members, and then toward all of the, the people who opposed his ministry. Think about the trials of Jesus and his torture and crucifixion, how he endured all of it without one record of complaint. That's patience. God calls us to be patient too, to endure all things without complaint. Patience is especially needed as we're interacting with other people. Every time we're in the line at the bank or we're driving on the highway, every time we're at a family reunion or we're at a worship service in a local church, we need patience. The Apostle Paul suggests two ways that we can show patience to one another within the local church. Uh, Look down at verse um, 13. First, by bearing with one another. Bearing with one another. You see, the local church is filled with all kinds of different people. There are people from all different walks of life. There are older people and younger people, um, people with a blue-collar background, people with a white-collar background, people with with differing political opinions, um, just different perspectives on life because of the experiences that they've had. You know, this is what makes the local church such a, a dynamic and interesting place. We've got all these different people. But this is also what makes the local church a place where there's a potential for conflict, precisely because we're, we're different. Well, here the Apostle Paul says, let us show the patience of Christ toward each other. Let us do that by bearing with one another. 
learning that it's okay to have different personalities or different, different preferences. It, it's okay that we don't think exactly alike. In fact, by the grace of God, we can even come to value these differences. But we must bear with one another. I'm sure there's one person, at least, in your extended family where you're like, you know, I just don't like that guy, <laughs> right? Or that, that relative. It's not that they've wronged me in any way. It's just that our personalities don't mesh well. Well, that happens in local churches, too. How could it not happen when there's such a diverse group of people? Sometimes there are just two, two personalities that don't mesh well. Well, we bear with each other. We show patience toward each other for the sake of the biblical mission. But then, look, Paul goes a step further here. He says, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Do you remember on the cross, as Christ was having the nails driven through his hands, he was praying Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. We're called to be forgiving people too. You know, sometimes in a local church, it isn't just a matter of personality differences. Sometimes members will sin against each other. We sin against each other in our own households, right? Why would we expect it to be different here when multiple households come together? Sometimes we're going to sin against each other. Maybe, maybe one church member will gossip about another, or maybe they will be unjust in their actions toward another believer. Many, many things can happen in a local church. Maybe anger or resentments are harbored by one member against another. Well, when these kinds of things happen, the one who has committed the offense must seek forgiveness. Wake up and see what you're doing to your fellow Christian and ask them to forgive you. But then it says, the one who's been offended must be ready to forgive. When that church member comes in humility and repentance and says, look, for, forgive me for, for spreading that gossip. It, it was wrong. I know it now. Our response ought to be, yes, I forgive you. Now, let's get back to work in this church. We're called to have patience toward each other, to bear with each other and forgive each other. Friends, this is how healthy churches operate. They recognize the differences that they have and sometimes the sins that they will commit against each other. But they continue on as a church family anyway because that's exactly what they are. They're a family. God has called them together to be a family. And families bear with each other and they forgive each other. That's what we're called to do. That takes us to the end of the uh, selfless virtues. Now let's look at the sacred virtues. Beginning in verse 14. The apostle writes, And above all of these, these selfless virtues, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Friends, according to Scripture, love is the chief virtue. In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says this, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and I can understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. 
And if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is the chief Christian virtue. Love is an attribute of God. 1 John 4 says that God is love, which means God is the very definition of love. Love is what motivated God the Father to send Christ to us. John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, gave him to us to come to earth, gave him up on the cross. It was out of his love. Galatians 2.20 says that it was Christ's love which in, uh, enabled him to endure the cross. Galatians 2.20, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul says here in Colossians 3 that love is the virtue which binds all the others together. It is love for God and others that enables you to be compassionate and meek and humble and kind and and patient toward them. Love always seeks God's best for others, even when they're not being too lovable themselves. And that's how love binds a community together. We must put on love. Then in verse 15, we must put on peace. He says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. Scriptures call Christ the Prince of Peace. He is at total peace within himself because he has no sins that he wrestles against. He is at total peace with God his Father, nothing between them. Christ came to bring peace to the world through his life, death, and resurrection. One day he will reign over a kingdom of peace. And as the bride of Christ, we are to be a peaceful people as well. He says, first of all, let peace rule your hearts. That means, first and foremost, we must be working to be rightly related to God. Have peace with God. That's something that Christ gives to us by His grace. And to have the peace that comes from knowing that all sins are forgiven. There's nothing now between me and God, and then to allow that personal peace to flow out into a peacemaking ministry. We're called to let peace reign in our local church as we come to see that we are all fellow believers in Christ. He's brought us all together as as one spiritual family, and peace must reign in this household if we are to be a worthy bride for Christ, and if we're to complete the work that he's given us to do. We're to be a people of love and of peace. But then next we see also gratitude. This is mentioned, in fact, three times in today's text. Verse 15 says, be thankful. Verse 16 says, have thankfulness in your hearts to God. Verse 17 says, give thanks to God the Father through Christ. We're to be a a thankful people. Remember what we talked about last week. Virtually every sin habit in our lives begins with discontentment in the heart. We say in our hearts, either God is not giving me what I need, or God is not giving me what I deserve, and so I must pursue it on my own, even if 
God says his will is not for me to do that. Romans chapter 1 says that ingratitude is a mark of a non-believer. And so we must not be characterized by ingratitude, by discontent. We must be a, a grateful people. How could we not be a grateful people in light of all that God has given us in Christ? I'll bet every one of us had a roof over our head last night. And every one of us had a meal to eat. Every one of us has, has family and friends that love us. We all have a local church that supports us. And more than that, we have all heard the gospel of Christ. We've had the opportunity, and, and many of us have had the experience of saving faith and having new lives in Christ. We know the reality of, of forgiven sins, of no fear of death. In light of all of these things, what room is there for ingratitude in our lives? Shall we look at all that God has done for us in Christ and, and decide to harbor resentment because we don't have enough dollars in our bank account? Or because our spouse doesn't give us quite as much affection as we wish they would? Shall we be resentful people because of things like these? When God has given us all of these riches in Christ, See, God calls us to be marked by love, and by peace, and by gratitude. And then there's one final virtue that he lists. Verse 16, I'm calling this the scripture virtue. He says, and let the word of Christ, that's the Bible, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let me stop there. He says, in addition to all of these other virtues, be soaking in the words of Scripture. One Puritan minister used to say, let the Bible be the original and your heart be the copy, the, the exact imprint of Scripture. Another Puritan minister, Francis Roberts, wrote this back in 1675. He said, what is there not... In the Holy Scriptures. Are we poor? Here's a treasury of riches. Are we sick? Here are medicines. Are we fainting? Here are cordials. Are we Christless? Here's the star that leads us to Christ. Are we Christians? Here's the bands that keep us in Christ. Are we afflicted? Here's our solace. Are we persecuted? Here's our protection. Are we deserted? Here's our recovery. Are we tempted? Here's our sword and victory. Are we young? Here's our beauty. Are we old? Here's our wisdom. While we live, here's the rule of our lives. When we die, here's the hope of our glorification. Oh, blessed scriptures, who can know them and not love them? That's the scripture. And one of the virtues that a Christian must put on is the virtue of meditating on the scriptures and bringing them into the heart so that all that is in the Scriptures becomes defining of us too. And out of that heart filled with Scripture, we will be able to minister to each other. Look what comes next. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Talking again about the relations of, of the people in the local church. Teaching the Scriptures involves 
offering positive instructions to people. Admonishing with the Scriptures means that you are confronting fellow church members as you see them drifting off the right path. And then he adds this, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitudes in your heart to God. Have you ever wondered why we have congregational singing in church? Well, it's because it's mandated by the Scriptures and also because it's absolutely necessary for our spiritual growth. Through congregational singing, we teach each other the truths of God's Word. We express our collective prayers to God. We shape our Christian affections through song. We unite our community of faith through song. And Paul mentions these three different kinds of songs. Uh, Psalms, that's the Old Testament songbook. And then hymns. Okay, these are songs that, that praise God for His attributes and His works. Then there's spiritual songs, probably referring to devotional songs. Songs that focus on the Christian experience, our, our response to all that God has been for us. These are the scripture virtues. And then finally we come to verse 17. Here we have the standing virtue. He says, and whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the catch-all. Paul's saying, look, there's a lot more that could have been said here, so let's just end it here. Everything you say, everything you do, just make sure you're representing Christ well in your family, in your church, in your community, everywhere, in everything. Represent Him well. So as I prepare to conclude now, friends, we see here that the Christian life isn't primarily about giving things up. It's about replacing worthless things with priceless things. It's about shedding the filthy garment of vice, but then putting on the clean linens of virtue. And in today's text, the Apostle Paul lists ten virtues to put on. He lists compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, love, peace, gratitude, letting the word of Christ dwell richly within us, and then with all that we are and with all that we do, representing Christ well. And how do we do it? Well, Paul has answered that question already too. The way we put on these virtues is by soaking in the scriptures, letting the words of Christ dwell richly within us, and then by being active participants in a local church where we will be teaching each other and admonishing each other and singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs together, and where we will be learning how to be compassionate and patient and humble together, and it involves living our lives out there in the public square, living them with non-believing loved ones and, and co-workers and neighbors. We put on these virtues as we study the scriptures, we identify them, we we commit ourselves to practicing them, and then we go about our God-given callings, and we allow God to use all of it in our lives to make us more like His Son. Kind of like stones that fall into a river, right? When that that stone first, first plops down into the river... 
It's probably got a lot of sharp edges to it, a lot of rough spots. But year after year, as the water rushes over that rough stone, it's going to begin smoothing out. All of those sharp points wear away. All, all of the, the rough spots get, get washed off. Have you ever picked up a river stone that's been down there a long time? It's this perfectly smooth, beautiful stone. That's what God is doing in our lives. We've come to faith in Christ. We're still a little rough. We haven't jettisoned all the baggage from the old life, but God is going to minister to us by His Spirit and by His Word as we meditate upon it, and He's going to use the the people in our local church as they admonish us and teach us, and as we sing together, He's going to use the experiences of life as we're just living out there in the world, living as a Christian in public, he's going to use it all like the river against the the stone, washing away all of the rough patches, leaving a smooth, beautiful stone in its place. It'll be a lifelong task for us to master these virtues, but what a worthwhile task. Think of the difference it will make in your personal life if you will be marked by all of these virtues. No more anger and malice, no resentments, no more sexual immorality, no more covetousness, no more evil desires like we learned about last week. Instead, just hearts filled with love and peace and gratitude, lives that are useful to others. Think of the difference it'll make in your household if you will have all of these virtues. Think of the difference it will make in your church and in your community. And think of what it will mean to Christ to have a bride presented before him, the church, that is spotless and undefiled. Friends, let's get to work putting these virtues on. Let's pray together now. Lord, you have given us two weeks to contemplate the nature of the Christian life, and the vices to put off, the virtues to put on. Help us, Lord, to engage in this process. Please help us to have a ministry in each other's lives, to help one another become a more virtuous people. Lord, we are are chosen by you, holy and beloved. Help us to live in light of that. Teach us to begin to put into practice what we already are in our position before you. Give us grace for this, Lord, and give us patience. We know it will be a lifelong process. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.